This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. At 26 Shirts, a different Buffalo-themed design is sold every two weeks. 52 divided by 2 is 26, hence the name 26 Shirts. Here's the best part. For every shirt sold, a donation is made to either a local family in need or a worthy charity. Since 2013, their designs have managed to raise and donate over $650,000. Head over to 26shirts.com and see what cause needs you this week. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. Welcome to episode 168 of the Moranalytics podcast, presented today by 26 Shirts. Head on over to 26shirts.com. Go see what worthy cause that you could help support this week. Today is Friday, November 8th, 2019. Thank you as always for listening and for downloading. If you have not yet subscribed to this future award-winning podcast, please go ahead and do that right now. Coming up on today's episode, I am extremely happy and honored to have one of the very best sports journalists in the business today. Longtime veteran, Cleveland Browns beat reporter at Cleveland.com. Mary Kay Cabot will join me. Actually, this is going to be her second time joining me on this podcast. She was back on with me all the way back on episode 27, which was like nearly a year and a half ago. That was a great chat. I'm sure today's will be as well. We'll talk about what in the ever living hell is going on with the Cleveland Browns this year. And how a team with that much talent on paper can only be two and six on the season. And I'll tell you what, too, by the way, I'm embarrassed to confess this, but in our NFL season preview episode that I did back right before the season started, I actually had the Browns pegged to make it all the way to the AFC Championship. <laughs> Hell, they might not make it to five wins this year. Anyway, Mary Kay breaks down everything going wrong in Cleveland from the offensive line the very inconsistent play from Baker Mayfield, some ill-timed mistakes, and a head coach who, frankly, may not even survive this season. And, of course, we'll spend plenty of time priming you up for Sunday's game between Cleveland and the Buffalo Bills, which for the Bills, I feel like it's an excellent opportunity to go 7-2 on the season, but it's not make or break, and it's an opportunity to beat a team that, at least on paper anyway, is still good. Somehow favored to win this game, too, by the way. Cleveland's favored, I think, by maybe a field goal. While for the Browns, this game is literally do or die. If they fall to 2-7 and seven on the year, that's a wrap. That's an official wrap for the 2019 Browns. If it's not already, probably is. Anyway, great chat with Mary Kay. Again, one of my favorites. And obviously, many people out there feel the same way. 
That's why she's a regular on shows like the Dan Patrick Show and the Rich Eisen Show, Jim Rome, etc. Good stuff. I'll have that for you in just a minute. Also coming up on the pod later today, I'm going to have a movie review of Dr. Sleep. Actually, you know what? I won't be having anything. The review is going to come courtesy of Sean Chandler from the Sean Chandler Talks About YouTube channel. Dr. Sleep is the sequel to The Shining, the iconic film nearly 40 years ago that starred Jack Nicholson. You'll never forget that scene of him looking all crazy. One of the most popular gifts in the world to this day. Anyway, this time the movie stars Ewan McGregor, who takes up the role of the kid Danny from the original some four decades later. Sean Chandler's awesome. His reviews are great. He kills them all. And let's get down to business today. Here's my chat with veteran Browns beat reporter, the amazing Mary Kay Cabot, followed by a movie review of Dr. Sleep, courtesy of Sean Chandler. Let's do it. Okay, my guest today is a well-known veteran Cleveland Browns beat reporter for Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, one of the very best in the business today. I, of course, am talking about Mary Kay Cabot. Good on, Mary Kay. How you doing? I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm doing really good. And real quick, before we get going, I just want to let people know who are listening that we had this interview arranged a while ago and a lot of stuff came up for you over the last, say, 24 hours or so. And you very, very easily could have said, I don't have time to do this. We have to reschedule for another episode, something like that. But you carved out time. You kind of bent over backwards to make this work for me. You didn't big league me at all when you easily could have. So I just want to let people out there listening know how much I appreciate you finding a way to make some time to do this interview with me today. Really cool. Oh, no problem. I, I try to live up to my commitments and uh, people have always been great to me and I'd like to uh, repay those favors. Well, I really appreciate it. Before we get talking about the Browns, I just want to say, you know, you've been on the Dan Patrick show several times. You've been on the Rich Eisen show many times, done the Jim Rome show. You've been around the game for a long time now doing shows like that. And it still seems like you're having a really good time doing it. Are you? Oh, I definitely am. Every year is so different. Every year goes so fast. It's so hard to believe that I've been doing it as long as I have. Uh, and even through all of the losing, it still is fun. I consider it to be one of the greatest jobs in the world. I take it very seriously. I try to do the best job that I can for the fans every single day. Uh, I think anybody that follows my work knows that I work very, very hard at this. Uh, I very rarely ever take a day off, and I'm always trying to be on top of things uh, for the fans and for the readers and the listeners, and I'm still enjoying it. Well, you do a really good job. I just want to point out, too, that Mary Kay was on the podcast before, all the way back episode 27 in June of 2018. It was fun. We spent nearly an hour chatting. Fans got to know you a lot better. If you didn't catch that, make sure you go back in the archives, check that out. Good stuff. But anyway, we're really talking about the Browns. I got to say, if there's any fan base out there that kind of identify with frustrations and how badly Cleveland has underperformed this year, it would probably certainly be the Buffalo Bills fan base. And a handful of times during the 17-year playoff drought that the Bills went through, they went out and had really good off-seasons, and it looked like they had all the key pieces in place. But then they go out and kind of underachieve. Clearly, that's been the case with Cleveland this year. When the world's going on with Cleveland? Two and six. I had them go in the AFC Championship game. We did a season preview right before the season started. And uh, obviously, that doesn't look to be a, a prediction that's going to come to fruition right now. What's going on in Cleveland? Well, I think one of the things that has gone on so far is the fact that they have played a brutal, brutal schedule. They they have played the two Super Bowl participants from last year. Uh, they have played uh, the Seattle Seahawks. 
They've played just some really, really tough football teams. The Ravens, who are on a roll this year, obviously, and the AFC North defending champs. And the I can't I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but the numbers are are very telling. Uh, they have just played some of the toughest teams and the toughest defenses in the NFL, and they just frankly haven't stacked up to them. Now, they just did lose to the Denver Broncos, uh, but once again, it was a really, really good defense. Still, they should have beat the Broncos, even though it was on the road, even though they're a great defense. Uh, they had a first-time starting quarterback, and the Browns' really good defense wasn't able uh, to get to him, to do anything, to disrupt him in any way. They couldn't tackle uh, so they sprung some leaks there. Also, they couldn't score in the red zone, the Browns. They they uh, they scored only one touchdown in uh, five trips into the red zone. So, um, you know, it, there's just a lot of things that have been going on. But first and foremost, I think uh, they just weren't able to beat these elite teams they've played. Now, you have your finger on the pulse of the Browns fan probably as much as anybody out there. As a fan, it has to be disheartening. The team goes out, they get Odell Beckham during the offseason, they get Sheldon Richardson, Olivier Vernon, they get Greg Robinson. It's just not translating, at least to wins and losses, it's not translating at all. As a Cleveland Browns fan, how frustrating has this season been considering the expectations? And again, you've been covering this team for a very long time. You've seen some terrible Cleveland teams. you see some good ones. This was supposed to be a team that, at least record-wise, is a lot better than what they are. Fans are so frustrated this year, and I just feel so bad for the fans. I have gone to three home games, sat there and watched these excited fans uh, uh, have their football team lose all three of these home games, including just getting crushed in the opener. It was so disheartening uh, because everyone was so pumped up and fired up about this season, and they just went into the opener and just got drilled by the Titans and right then and there, you just kind of knew the bloom might be off the rose for the season of great expectations, and it might not go the way everyone planned. Another big, huge thing that has gone on, and we should spend a little time on this, is the fact that Odell Beckham Jr. and Baker Mayfield, they just haven't had the connection this season that everyone thought they would have. And the signs were there. I, uh, I tried to warn people that not coming to, not showing up for OTAs and missing most of training camp uh, could be very costly during the season, and it has proven to be so. When it comes to Baker Mayfield, you just mentioned him. How have fans been towards him? Obviously, he's been very inconsistent. In Buffalo, the Bills are 6-2. and two. And Josh Allen's probably been a little bit above average, nothing spectacular. But the fans, the feeling towards Josh Allen in Buffalo is still, I'd say, very mixed, to say the least. What's the vibe with fans going towards Baker Mayfield right now through his struggles early on this year? You know, I would say it's also mixed. I would, I think a lot of fans are starting to, you know, jump off the uh, Baker bandwagon a little bit and wonder if he's everything he was cracked up to be. Uh, but there are still plenty of fans uh, that think that he can be the elite franchise quarterback the Browns drafted him number one overall to be. So again, uh, it's a mixed bag with the fans. I still see some really great things in Baker Mayfield. I still see the accuracy uh, most of the time. I mean, now he's been a little bit off this year, uh, but I still see uh, someone that that can throw a really nice deep ball, great arm, all kinds of the the things that the Browns saw when they drafted him. So I, I still think there's plenty of hope for Baker Mayfield. When you look at his stats this year, seven touchdowns, 12 interceptions, just under 60% completion, only a 71.3 overall quarterback rating. 
And it's hard to believe, you know, from what little I've seen him play, it feels to me like he's playing with a lack of discipline this year. Has that been the case? Like, has he been a little bit erratic in his decision-making this, this season? No, I don't think so. I, I just think that, uh, once again, he hasn't had any chemistry really yet with Odell Beckham Jr. I think they're going to continue to try to get that rolling, but it's hard to get that in-game. It's in the heat of the moment uh, when you're playing these good defenses. It is hard uh, to try to get that rolling. And Baker likes things uh, to be very precise. He wants people to be exactly where they're supposed to be when they're supposed to be there to run the right routes and things like that. And I think at times Odell has had to freelance a little bit just to get open. Uh, And I think he expects that Baker will find him and Baker should find him more than he has. So I think that, um, you know, he's going to have to maybe try not to be so perfect with Odell and and what he's trying to do. He's going to have to, you know, go through his progressions. And if it, if he's doubled the first time, you know, go back to him and look and see, you know, did he, did he shake loose a little bit? Does he have a little bit of real estate? And if so, try to squeeze it in there. It certainly appears that Freddie Kitchens could be a one and done candidate. That's a lot of rumors out there. A lot of reports saying that could be the case as somebody who covers the team. Do you see that as a decent possibility? At least if things continue on the way they are this season. You know, I think some of it is going to depend on how the last eight games of the season go. I mean, they're going to have to really make sure that they have the right coach to take this roster and this team to the next level. If they don't feel that they do, then, you know, then they're going to have to make a change. Now, uh, you know, I'm sure they're they're probably thinking that maybe he's suffering some from some first year growing pains. But, you know, do you want that or do you think that he can make that leap in his second year and not have that going on? And, and understand, you know, how to, you know, how to scheme up a red zone play so that you can actually score a touchdown. I mean, if, if these things don't start to happen, they're going to have to take a hard look at that after the year. With that whole Jermaine Whitehead social media meltdown on Sunday night that led to him getting cut the very next day on Monday. I'm sure you've dealt with him many times previously, or at least before. Did what happened over the past week kind of surprise you? Did that throw you off a little bit? Yes, it absolutely did. He was really great in the locker room with us. His teammates really liked him a lot. Uh, I think it was a tough loss. It was the heat of the moment and it unearthed just a a side of him that, uh, you know, that he hadn't shown since he has been in Cleveland. Now I know that there had been an incident uh, when he was in Green Bay, but he had been on his best behavior in Cleveland and you know, with the reporters, he, he was really good. We could go up to him at any time, ask him questions. Uh, he was cordial. He was very forthcoming. He was a great quote. And, you know, we all really liked him and we're very surprised about this. Now, when you're two and six, there's a lot of negative things that come with that, but it hasn't been like all bad in Cleveland for the Browns this year. Miles Garrett, second in the NFL with 10 sacks. He's probably been the Browns best player this year. How's his involvement gone? Because it certainly seems to me, at least someone on the outside, you know, who doesn't watch Cleveland play all that much, that this kid's becoming one of the better defensive linemen in the entire NFL. Well, he absolutely is that. And I think his 10 sacks, uh, can, you know, can attest to that. Um, as far as him being the best player on the team this year, I think that uh, actually I would give that to Nick Chubb right now, even though he ha- he has had a couple of very costly fumbles and uh, that really hurt them in the New England game when he fumbled on back-to-back plays. Uh, he's been the, the the workhorse, the MVP, sort of the uh, the heart and soul of this Cleveland Browns team. As for Miles, those 10 sacks are great, 
but I still think that as the number one overall pick, Miles needs to pick it up a notch and and actually take over some games, uh, you know, make some turnovers, maybe score, force some fumbles, those kind of things. I think he needs to be a little bit more dominant. I'm with Mary Kay Cabot, who is found time for me, talking to me on herself while she's driving again. I appreciate you. Let's turn our attention to Sunday's game against Buffalo. Obviously, for the Bills, they want to keep rolling and hopefully be able to kick a Cleveland team when they're down. Conversely, I have to assume for Cleveland that this already feels like a playoff elimination game coming up on Sunday. Am I right to say that? Or do you feel like that feeling kind of already passed and went out the window when they lost to Denver? Yeah, you know, I think the the wind kind of went out of the sails a little bit when when they lost to Denver. And then on that very same night, the Ravens beat the Patriots. And that came on the heels of their victory over the Seahawks to improve them to six and two. So the Browns going to two and six. The Ravens going to six and two, as opposed to an opportunity that day for the Browns to close within two games of the Ravens with the easiest part of their schedule coming up and the hardest part of the Ravens schedule uh, that they were in the thick of it at that time. I think that that really was a huge, huge turning point for the Browns. And now they're faced with basically almost winning out. Now, can they do it? It's not impossible. Uh, but they definitely have to get this one. They have to get this game. This is one of the toughest of what they have left. The other one will be the Ravens game. And then mixed in there, they have got uh, you know some games that they absolutely will and should win against the Bengals and against the Dolphins. Uh, they've got the Steelers twice still. And you know I would have to think that uh, that defense is playing well enough that they're going to give the Browns a run for their money. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's realistic to win out. Um, we'll have to see how that goes, but yeah, they for sure have got to win this game to keep those hopes alive. If they come out and play bad in the first quarter and let's just say the bills get up 10 points, two scores, you feel like, I mean, the Cleveland Browns are some of the best fans in the NFL, so I'm not taking anything away from them, but given the way the whole season's went two and six coming in, if they get off to a slow start and the bills start dominating early on the road. Do you think that might be a crowd that completely turns on them Sunday? It would. I mean, they've got to come out and give their fans something to cheer about. They've got to come out and show some of that explosiveness that they were built to be. I remember back in training camp when Baker Mayfield uh, you know, would talk about this offense and all these skill players, and he would say, it's going to be pick your poison. And that's what it was supposed to be. And, you know, here they are not even being able to score in the red zone. So, uh, so disappointing. And the fans deserve much, much better. The Browns know that. I think they're going to go out there and try to put on a show for them. I think they're going to try to keep it together. They they haven't put, put together a game yet, but they did clean up a couple of areas last week that they really set out to do, and that was penalties and turnovers. They didn't turn the ball over for the first time all season. Uh, and they were relatively penalty-free. They had four or five penalties, nothing that really killed them this game. Uh, but then they sprung the leak in the red zone. Now they've got to put together a game where they can do it all, keep turnover-free, penalty-free, and also score the football. One decided advantage that I think Cleveland has coming into this game is in the running game itself. You talked about Nick Chubbs. He's been fantastic this year. And Kareem Hunt's expected back as well. If the Bills have a real weakness, in their defense, especially of late anyway. It's been stopping the run. Jordan Howard a couple weeks ago, Adrian Peterson had big days against him the last couple weeks. Do you expect this to be a steady dose of Cleveland really trying to run the ball down the Bills' throat? 
Absolutely, yes. I think they've given up 345 yards uh, in their last two games alone. And now you've got Kareem Hunt coming back this game. You've got Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, and Kareem is going to have really fresh legs. Not only that, he's going to be playing in front of the home crowd and playing his first football game in about 350 some days. So he is going to be ready to roll and run through a wall. And, you know, it could be watch out for the Bills unless they really, really make that a point of emphasis. What is an area or two from a Buffalo Bills perspective where you feel like coming into this game, Buffalo's got a nice decided advantage? Well, their pass defense is very, very good. So I would have to think that they have an edge there. Uh, You know, I think they're third overall in in pass defense. And that is just something that the Browns are going to have to really um, you know, try to get it rolling against them. And then, you know, Josh Allen, again, he's had his ups and downs, but he can come, he's been coming back in the fourth quarter and winning games. Uh, he can hurt you with his legs. He can hurt you with that big arm of his, and they're also running the ball very well. So, and and they kind of have the one, two punch there. So these are things that the Browns are going to have to prove that they can stop, especially the run. What's your take on Josh Allen? I remember our conversation last year, which wasn't too long after the NFL draft, and you were talking about how up until the final days before the draft that Josh Allen was a very, very serious consideration for Cleveland with that top pick. Well, you know, at least that's the way that it was sort of portrayed and put out there. But, you know, as you go back over it all, uh, you know, John Dorsey later comes to admit that, you know, he knew back in, I don't know, something like November that he wanted to draft Baker Mayfield. Um, Yeah, I think it was November, maybe even as far back as October. So even though they they left it out there for, you know, some of the uh, the draft gamesmanship that goes on, I think that they were really, really set on Baker Mayfield and really didn't have any serious, strong intentions of drafting Josh Allen. Now, I thought uh, that he should have been somebody under serious consideration for them uh, because I just liked so many things about him, including uh, the mobility, the size, the big arm, and all of that. Now, I think Brian Dayball is doing a really, really good job with him, former Browns offensive coordinator. Uh, I think you have to give Brian a lot of credit uh, for what he's been able to do. We talked to Steve Wilkes, Browns defensive coordinator, did about Josh Allen. He feels like he has improved his accuracy uh, very well. Now, he's got to tighten up the fumbles. I think he's got something like 10 fumbles, and the Browns are going to try to go after that and exploit that this game. He's got to learn to hang on to that football. Does it surprise you that Cleveland's 2-6, and six, the Bills come in at 6-2, and two, and that the Bills still come into this game technically as underdogs? I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. The game's won or lost on the field. But still, the Bills come into the game, an underdog at a 2-6 and six team. Does that kind of feel to you like the Bills don't really get any respect around the league? Well, I think you have to look at the opponents that both teams have played. Sure. And again, uh, the, the Browns have been through the gauntlet of really good, good, top-notch winning football teams and including some undefeated football teams, or at least the Patriots were, were undefeated when they played them. So, you know, they played the 49ers, they've played the, uh, they've played the new England Patriots, uh, right before they went into the Denver game, their previous three opponents were 22 and two or something like that. It was insane. So I think that has just had so much to do with it. And that lineup just blows away 
what what the Bills have faced so far, and I think that factors in. Last question here, and then I'm going to let you go. Actually, it's not a question. It's a prediction. I always have a beat writer from the other team on, and I got to get a prediction from you. Is this the week that the Browns start to at least flirt with getting things turned around with their season, or is this the week where the Bills put the final nail in the Browns for the 2019 season? What do you got? When it's 4.05 Sunday p.m., what's going to be that? Who's going to win that game? What's that score? Well, you know, I have not made my pick yet, and I haven't made my decision because it's still only Thursday. And for me, that's a little that's a little too early uh, to make my final pick. I still uh, want to you know, talk to more players in the locker room tomorrow, get the vibe for it. But I do think that this is a week that the Browns can go out there in front of their home crowd, get their first home victory, and, and really just take it to a, a team for the first time since they beat the Ravens in week, I think it was three. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm probably leaning towards picking the Browns in this game. Uh, but you know, you just, I, I can't really say for sure. I'm super confident about that. I'll probably lean that way. All right. One last question then here, then if Cleveland goes out and they beat the bills who are six and two, and again, you're right. I mean, they really, the bills have not really beaten anybody, but beating a team that is six and two with a good defense, the vibe might change a little bit in Cleveland amongst fans. Conversely with Buffalo, if they go out and beat Cleveland, despite a poor record, they are a very good team, at least on paper. Anyway, you think that beating the Cleveland Browns? might start to do a lot to help like maybe the national media and the fans around the league might start noticing the bills more and giving them more respect. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if they get to seven victories, you have to start thinking about them in terms of the postseason and, you know, grabbing the wild card and, and whatnot. So yes, I do think it's a big, big game for them. And I think they're going to be very, very motivated. I think it's a big game for Josh Allen. I mean, he was passed over by the Cleveland Browns. Maybe he'll be able to find a little motivation in that. And again, you know, they're on the road to the playoffs at six and two and they can keep it rolling. All right, everyone give Mary Kay a follow on Twitter at Mary Kay Cabot. And of course, check out her work at cleveland.com again, Mary Kay. Thank you so much. I mean, you hit me up on your cell phone driving. That's how busy you've been. I really appreciate you. No problem. Thanks for having me. Today's lifestyle demands the best in wireless, and with Pulse Cellular, you have the best options available. Switch to Pulse Cellular for unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data, coast-to-coast with no contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. One line for $65 or four lines for just $45 each, including hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and 50 gigs per line. And for all you travelers, we got you covered in Canada and Mexico, plus text and data in over 210 countries worldwide, all with the best phones or bring your own that's pretty awesome get the best user experience on mobile at pulsecellular.com okay so before i get out of here gonna finish off today's episode i'm gonna play a movie review of dr sleep it's out in theaters now if you're a regular listener that is podcast you know that occasionally from time to time we do movie reviews and they always come courtesy of sean chandler from the sean chandler talks about youtube channel Sean was a guest of mine on the podcast before, and I was just blown away by the job he does on his channel. Sean's been cool enough to let me play some audio versions of his movie reviews from time to time. I put one on when I feel like it's a movie that will kind of fit with the demographic and the theme of what people listen to this show would be into. And in this case, with Dr. Sleep, certainly think that's the case. In exchange, all he asks is that I throw him a plug or two 
which to be honest with you, I'd be doing that anyway. I'm a big fan of his. His channel's fantastic, highly entertaining. He's got full movie reviews on there, spoiler versions, non-spoiler versions, in some cases, both for the same movie, power rankings of movie franchises, TV episode stuff, a lot of stuff he does with The Office, which I'm obviously a huge fan of. Just a lot of good things on that channel, which by the way, he's got over 138,000 subscribers on that channel, and it's growing so insanely jealous of that. Content going up almost on a daily basis. And again, it's really good stuff. There's lots of people on YouTube who put stuff up all the time, but it's not, frankly, it's not always very good. It's not the case with Sean. His stuff is great. Again, Sean Chandler talks about YouTube channel. Go check that out. Hit subscribe there. As for the movie, Dr. Sleep, it's a thriller slash horror film. It's based on the book of the same name from Stephen King. Of course, that's the sequel to the famous 1977 book, The Shining which became a movie in 1980, as we all know, starring Jack Nicholson. This version, Dr. Sleep, it stars Ewan McGregor and Rebecca Ferguson. And the plot, according to Rotten Tomatoes, is a continuation of Danny Torrance's story 40 years after the terrifying events of Stephen King's The Shining. The Shining was a classic. Will Dr. Sleep become one as well? Let's find out. Take it away, John Chandler. Dr. Sleep is an adaptation of the Stephen King novel of the same name and a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. The story follows a grown-up Danny using his gifts to help a girl who also has The Shining. The Shining is obviously a horror classic, so there's a whole lot of anticipation for this film. With that in mind, go ahead and join me down below in the comment section. With that said, let's get started talking about the good. And probably the best thing about this film is that it doesn't try to be Kubrick, it doesn't try to be The Shining. It's set in the same world, it has The Shining, Danny is the lead character, but it tells its own story in its own way. It doubles down on the mythology of The Shining itself. Whereas the film The Shining is this claustrophobic story about these people at this haunted hotel, The Shining itself, and then a man being driven mad, Dr. Sleep is this very large story about a world populated by people with powers and how they respond to those powers. While it's a very different type of story told very differently, it actually has a lot of the same themes about death, dealing with our past, alcoholism, power, potential, and just explores them in very different ways, but in ways that actually complement The Shining. I've said this many times before, but The Shining and Stanley Kubrick kind of operate on a different wavelength than I do. I respect them more than I necessarily enjoy them. I can see why other people love them, but I'm not in that category of people that just are absolutely bonkers for Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Whereas Dr. Sleep, I think, operates thematically, structurally, storytellingly, I think I just made up a new word, more on my wavelength. It's a far more traditional good versus evil narrative. The conflict is more obvious, the interpretation is more clear, and the themes more bluntly stated. And for me, and for the way I operate, those are all good things. On a different note, this movie is a little bit like Stephen King's version of a superhero story. I imagine a lot of people have that takeaway leaving the theater. Here, the powers themselves are very much front and center more so than they were in The Shining. And 
It's dark, it's horrifying, it's populated by demons and serial killers, but you also have good people with powers that oppose them, so superheroes and supervillains. It's also a very thematically rich film. Stephen King is kind of infamous for not liking Kubrick's take on his novel because he lessened certain themes that were very important to Stephen King, and those themes are back in this story, a lot of them on kind of the alcoholism itself. And what the film does is it sets up the contrast and the similarities between Danny and Jack, and you can see ways in which they're repeating certain cycles, and you can see the differences in how Danny does certain things. It explores ideas about alcoholism much deeper and how it can be in a, a dampen the past in a way to escape the pain that you've experienced, but it also in the same way dampens your potential for the future. And those are kind of neat ideas because of all of this and because in the film, Danny spends a lot of time kind of reflecting on his father, it adds some extra new layers to Jack's character. For me, all of this was very profound that kind of hit me pretty heavily. I've mentioned it before on my channel, but my dad was an alcoholic that drank himself to death. And then I kind of repeated that cycle in my adult life and struggled with alcoholism. When I started this YouTube channel, I was in treatment for alcohol addiction. And so watching this film, it really resonated with me on a whole lot of levels because of the things that it explored. Finally, we'll talk about the cast and the characters a little bit. Ewan McGregor in the lead is quite good in the film. He doesn't necessarily have anything specific that just like popped that was amazing. I mean, you think back on The Shining, Jack Nicholson's performance, it's just one of these iconic film roles. That's not what Ewan McGregor is doing here, but he does a very good job with what he's given. Rebecca Ferguson, is a little bit more of a standout and brings a little bit more distinction to her character. She's absolutely vile and awful, but she plays her in a way that makes her interesting, unique, kind of quirky in some of the way she does things and has like this charm to her, but she kind of hate her at the same time. And so it's a very interesting dynamic with the characters. The child actress, I think, does a really nice job of kind of playing right along Ewan McGregor throughout this story and really liked the character and what they did with her. While she does have certain childish things about her, she's not like this weak, scared character at all. And our villains are despicable. You hate them. They kind of create this whole mythology of what they're doing and it's just so vile and wicked that as you kind of move into the last 40% of the film, there's all kinds of payoff, great moments when you have this show, the mini showdowns inside of it that I thought worked really nicely. They had different ways that things played out that, I mean, I just love the last 40% of this film. It's a movie that, for me, got better as it went along, and I left very much like, man, I really liked what they did there. With that said, let's move on to the mixed aspects of the film. First thing that comes to mind is this is a very dark film. If you're someone that can't handle children in peril and in pain, this is not a movie for you. It shows some very dark stuff. There's a sequence that's pivotal to the film that isn't short and just is very traumatizing. It's supposed to be something that just outrages you, makes you mad, that sets up everything else that happens inside of the film, but it is incredibly dark where this movie goes and how it lingers on it will not be for a lot of people. Second kind of mixed thing on the film is that it has some ties back 
to The Shining and it tries to kind of show some things and explore certain characters. And it does it in a way that I, I think was wise in what they did, but I'm not quite sure if I liked it or not. I'm not quite sure if it was a distraction or not. And so these aren't necessarily bad things. They're not good things. They're things worth mentioning. People probably fall on different sides with them. From there, let's move on to the bad. And the big thing that comes to mind here is that the first 45 minutes, first act of this film is just too long and meandering. It's attempting to do a whole lot of things all at once. And because of that, it just goes on forever. I mean, it's trying to set up the story, the characters, the themes. It's trying to bridge the gap between 1980 and the present day. It's trying to adapt a book. It's trying to be a sequel to a movie and it's trying to make Stephen King happy. And when you're trying to do all that stuff in just the first act of your movie, it just kind of goes on too long. The big example of this is there's a whole sequence in the film that kind of shows the recruitment of a specific character. And it spends about 10 minutes on this. And through that, we kind of learn some of the rules of what's going on, people's motivations, fills in some gaps. And it's trying to explain all of this through storytelling rather than through exposition. But the sequence goes on for like 10 minutes long, so you think it's setting up this big character arc where you're going with things, and it's really not. It's just giving you some information about how this group works, and because of that, it just took too long in a first act that was already too long and trying to do too many things. And so it just felt like an odd sequence that would have been a very cool deleted scene on a Blu-ray or for a director's extended cut or something like that. But in this kind of viewing of the film, it just felt like it was too much. But really that whole kind of first hour of the film felt like there was a bit too much of everything. We kind of see so much of Danny's backstory and what he's been doing and how it gets us to the point where the narrative kicks in that it just seems like it's kind of going and going for so long and giving us so many details about his work life and everything that we didn't actually need all of that for what takes place in the next hour and a half. But that really is the big problem here. Once things got going, I really enjoyed the movie and it moved at a really nice pace, but there's so much setup in extra stuff at first that I just don't think all of it needed to be there. Now granted, because there's so much setup and we spend so much time with these villains and we see kind of just how lost Danny was at certain points in time in his life, as you move into that final 40%, it has so much payoff inside of it because you hate the bad guys and you enjoy seeing Danny discover his potential and what he was meant to do that it works on an emotional level, but I just think that they could have definitely tightened it up and we didn't need to see all of that stuff to set up the latter half of the film. Dr. Sleep may meander a little bit at the beginning and it's probably about 15 minutes too long, but the themes explored in the payoff of the second half of the film make it well worth the trip back to the Overlook. It's a B plus for me. It's an eight out of 10 on the entertainment scale. And I do think you should see this one in the theater. Thank you so much for watching and keep talking movies too much. Hi, I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the podcast about broadcast. Every week since 2016, we've been bringing on broadcast leaders to talk about their experiences in radio, what they've seen, and where they believe it is all going. If you live and love radio, subscribe to the Sound Off Podcast with Matt Kundal wherever you get your podcasts. All right, boys and girls, that is going to do it for another episode. Very big thank you again, Mary Kay Cabot, Cleveland.com, 
one of the best in the business. Always love talking to Mary Kay. Also, thanks as well to my man, Sean Chandler from the Sean Chandler Talks About YouTube channel. Go check that out. Some of the best movie reviews you'll find anywhere. Guys, if you have not yet done so already, please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast, rating review, all that fun stuff. It really helps me grow the show a lot. You can find us on Apple, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Citrus, Spotify, pretty much anywhere future award-winning podcasts are found. Got new shows every Tuesday and every Friday. And when you subscribe, you'll get them first before anyone else does. Also, go hit up the Analytics Podcast YouTube channel. Got podcast highlight clips from current past shows. Plenty of brand new original audio content. That's exclusive to that channel, by the way. Not going to hear it anywhere else, including this podcast. I'm putting up stuff at least a few times per week now. Hopefully you'll enjoy it again. Analytics Podcast YouTube channel. Subscribe. Hit that little bell next to it as well so you can get notifications when new content is released. And then last but not least, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Tweets. Constantly tweeting out podcast updates, upcoming guest polls, prize pack giveaways, thoughts, all kinds of other stuff. Again, at Pat Tweets. Thanks again for listening. Say it all the time. I really mean it. I appreciate each and every single one of you that take time from your day to give this podcast a listen. It means the world to me. Very thankful. Have a good weekend. Have plenty to talk about next week. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.